Welcome to Turning Conscience into Action, the Earth Charter Podcast. Join Miriam Vilela, Earth Charter International Executive Director, in her fascinating conversations with great thinkers, scholars, and activists from around the world who are working in the fields of sustainability, ethics, education, and social transformation. Our purpose is to generate new insights on how to face current global challenges and inspire informed action. For this podcast episode, we are sharing a conversation with Yang Prong, former Minister of International Cooperation and Minister of Environment of the Netherlands. And he was also a special envoy of the United Nations Secretary General to Sudan. Thank you so much for accepting to join us, uh, Yang Prong. One important thing to say is that uh, when Yang Prong was Minister of International Cooperation uh, around the early 90s. Uh, it was actually when the New Earth Charter Initiative was launched uh, with the cooperation and support of the Dutch government back in 94. So he has been around and supporting the Earth Charter Global Initiative uh, for many, many years. So Jan, uh, what is your take on the current challenges humanity is facing? Um, I think the, the challenges we have to, to see as uh, humanity is expanding the frontiers of uh, global and local challenges. So what is your take on the, the current challenges we are facing in terms of pandemic, climate change, and et cetera? Well, I'm stuck by the, struck by the fact that you use the terminology challenges which is very positive uh, way to look at it. I, well, you know me, uh, I'm, a, I'm quite a pessimistic guy. Um, I see all these phenomena as catastrophes. Now, of course, a catastrophe is also a challenge, uh, but it is a catastrophe. Um, we have, for instance, the pandemics, and there will be more. Uh, because of ecological distortion, man invading nature, uh, the living areas of plants and animals. We have an economic crisis, increasing inequality and poverty amongst all those people who cannot keep up with the others. We have conflicts getting greater, larger and larger. Many different conflicts, uh, but to a large extent also due to the fact that nation states are, are dwindling down uh, because of less democratization, authoritarian politics, um, struggles amongst groups within nations. We have wars, so many international wars and domestic wars. They are and many of these wars so, are not even showing anymore on the news. Hmm? No, they are hardly on the screen. Um, but uh, there are not many very stable countries nowadays where people really can expect that there will be progress in freedom and welfare. Even countries which in the past were examples of possibly 
progressive and proceeding countries, such as the United States, uh, they're falling apart. We have a huge crisis because of the refugees in many countries, which are not being helped at all. They are being stopped at borders, uh, and the numbers are increasing. No, I can continue. My point is that all these crises, all these catastrophes are related to each other. Huh? Um, if you are living in a difficult natural environment, um, there will be poverty. And if there is poverty, there will be conflict. When there is conflict, there will be either war or a solution with authoritarian rule. And that will lead to a refugee crisis. In and a conflict, we will also affect environment. So it's continuing. It's continuing. Um, now, my main point is that, and then perhaps I come closer to your terminology of challenges. Um, we have seen it before. We have seen major crises in the world in the first half of the previous century leading to wars, world wars, and also a possibility of nuclear annihilation. And then it was seen as a challenge. Never again. Let's not get further. And we were building on the basis of gradually globally shared values, a shared system of international law, and a number of institutions which could help us to discuss all these problems politically in order to find common solutions rather than to fight and to have another war. Now, United Nations is an example of this. All these UN organizations were different examples of it uh, on the basis of international law, uh, the Charter of Human Rights, uh, the refugee uh, treaties, the European community was an example. Um, the organization of markets, whereby also a number of values were to be respected in terms of trade, also a monetary discipline. It was all part of a system. Now, the system was used to address the catastrophes of the time. In the meantime, and that's in particular since the year 2000, but there were already some examples before then, the, si the system is being dismantled. Who cares about international law? Uh, international trade law, international financial law, um, international environmental, international refugee law, the international treaty of the rights of the child, etc. Who cares? Uh, some countries do, uh, big companies are not interested, they are too global, too supranational, and a number of major powers um, is just going for a nationalistic or geopolitical uh, um, power. Um, U.S. number one, and the U.S. was the founding father of the United Nations, you may say, uh, China, Russia. And Europe is feeling threatened by this, is not going yet into the wrong direction, but a number of international laws are also not being 
complied with by the European community. Take, for instance, the international uh, law with regards to the rights of, of refugees. Um, so I see the system gradually being dismantled. Um, so will a new alternative emerge? A new alternative for the system? And that is what is necessary, it's not yet in the making. So that is the challenge. But maybe the biggest catastrophe is not all those catastrophes which I mentioned, but the fact that we are depriving ourselves of the systems and the values which are necessary to address all these catastrophes. Wow, that's a good point. That's a good point. We need to look at the current, the capacity of the current system and the values we all have as humanity to be able to address the current challenges. Definitely. Ah, so that's good. So one of the questions was, uh, uh, what's most needed uh, to change the course. So humanity is, is heading towards maybe a catastrophe, as you would say, but to change the course to another direction and to yeah. take humanity to a new path. So you would say is new institutions, values? Maybe a restoration of existing institutions because it's always difficult to build new institutions. That's number one. Number two, uh, you need a kind of a, a world popular movement of people who consider themselves as belonging to one earth community, one global community. Um, not a nationalistic movement, but a world movement. Um, some efforts were made during the last 20 years the resistance uh, against um, global capital, for instance, uh, but it all died out. What do I see yet? And because if I have to speak about catastrophes or challenges, then I also have to say something about hope. What I see at the moment is that younger people perhaps are more willing to consider themselves as part of the world community without discrimination. All people having the same rights. You see that at the moment in the um, um, Black Lives Matter movement, which is also getting support from many non-black young people. It's one thing. You also see that in the young people who are going for the fight against climate change. Um, it all of a sudden, it ticked. And other young people were following the example of Greta Thunberg. It's an example. Young people, either with regard to the issue of race or with regard to the issue of climate, you also see that sometimes in individual countries, in order to help Refugees, young people willing uh, to, um, to, to go and help them and uh, to fight for them. They, it is not yet a movement, but it is anyway a, a value system, climate, race, refugees huh, oriented, uh, which is crossing national frontiers, uh, which is 
part of maybe a lifestyle of a younger generation. And of course, it is not just young in terms of age. Huh? It is older people can also feel young, feel affected by the new drive of those young people. Now, that is necessary in order to, to resist the powers. So you have worked for so many years in international cooperation, in different fields. You must have some good stories. You must have some good stories and bad ones on your in your life as uh, in, in the field of international cooperation. Would you share with us some examples of uh, stories you have lived in international cooperation? Uh, stories. Um, there were in in those years in which I was able to work together with others. There were some major steps forward because the institutions were used well. Um, let's face it: the major victory of the new system, which was built in 1946, the United Nations, was decolonization. The whole southern part of the world had been colonized for centuries and in 30 years it was over and that was on the basis of international law international institutions and values no i was i was young but i was part of that process um, and it, i think it is extremely important now secondly there was the idea that all these countries ought to be assisted to become also economically self-reliant. That became international development cooperation. And for quite a number of years, international development cooperation was an important issue of the system. Thirdly, it was possible to to discuss the values of the system and to start processes to, to adjust the system in order to benefit other countries, weaker countries, poorer countries than the countries which had started the system. And I was asked you know, in 1975 uh, to chair the negotiations on within the framework of the United Nations on a new international economic order. Uh, which was the um, uh, demand of the developing countries, but the rich countries had to give in, and so we had negotiated, and, and I was asked to, to chair those negotiations. Well, we did reach a compromise. We did reach a text with some changes in the values and the rules of law as far as the international economic order so far had been. That was step forward. However, step backward, it was not implemented for a number of reasons which I'm not going to, to discuss here. But it is possible to negotiate and to reach a result. Um, implementation is a second issue. I had a similar experience 20 years ago. I was asked to chair the world negotiations on climate. And we did make the Kyoto Protocol into a legal text, a binding text, which would be effective also with uh, compliance procedures and with sanctions. 
This was, was probably a fascinating experience it, to share that it process. Was. It, was. it was fascinating because we proved that it is possible at a worldwide level to reach an agreement. Compromising, of course, and you can be more ambitious, but you have to find a, a solution in which all countries can participate. Now, again, it was a major step forward. Um, 20 years after, for the first time, also scientists had said, well, climate change is man-made, so men have to do something about it. However, it was not implemented. Um, because the Kyoto Protocol was binding, um, but only for a specific period, and then we would have to restart the negotiations for the next stage, and they didn't take part. Instead, countries uh, discussed um, another treaty in which they would not bind themselves, but they would only promise to do their best. And plans had to be submitted to the Secretariat, but um, the plans were not binding, and the outcome of all the national plans in terms of climate change was far above what was considered to be sustainable for the world as a whole. So, step forward, no implementation, step backward. Two examples. And that is what we have seen. It is kind of an echternacht session. Huh? Uh, you step forward and you step backward. Now, until the year 2000, I thought it is extremely difficult. You step forward and backward. Um, and, uh, some of these institutions were nullified. So for instance, I was the Deputy Secretary General of the UNCTAD, UNCTAD, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. We had negotiated. It was possible to negotiate a number of solutions of international economic problems. However, in the mid-1980s, uh, the Americans, Reagan, said, no way, I do not want to continue to negotiate anymore because any international negotiation is well, is violating our national liberties and rights. So, step forward, UNCTAD, step backward, stop. Um, the 1990s were a very interesting period because after that great conference in Rio de Janeiro on environment and development, uh, where we, well, agreed on a charter on an agenda for the year for the 21st century we had many initiatives of world negotiations on specific issues uh, on social affairs on the position of women uh, for instance on human rights just to mention a couple there were more and in the united nations uh, butros butros galil uh, and um, Secretary General, who is underrated uh, in my view, uh, came with an agenda for peace, an agenda for development, um, um, and they were uh, agreed upon. However, it was difficult to implement it, but we walked further in the right direction, but not fast enough. So the catastrophes were showing themselves already as coming. Now, the last very positive 
thing, in my view, and I was no longer involved in that, was the Millennium Development Declaration with the Millennium Development Goals, which is a brilliant set of goals. Uh, ambitious, but feasible, uh, worldwide, committing everybody. Um, it has been implemented partly, not well enough. Um, and now we see the Sustainable Development Goals, which in my view is the, the major positive outcome of an international negotiation of the last 10 years. However, they have to be implemented again. Um, and that is the difficulty. But it is, if you read it, the whole set of Sustainable Development Goals, it is an effective answer to capitalism. Because capitalism, which was the major force behind all those processes of the last couple of decades, capitalism means capital is more important than people and nature. You always need in the economy people, capital and nature, for instance raw materials, uh, in order to do something, to produce something, to create welfare. But if you say capital is the most important, then the direction of your process is being dictated by capital, and it may go to the detriment of people, poverty, people are being excluded, people are being exploited, people are being um, sent away out of the country, out of the system, and to the detriment also of the environment of nature, of climate. No. So capital is doing all this. Capitalism is doing all this. Sustainability means capital is not the most important thing because it has to be sustainable for all people, for the earth as a whole, for future generations. And that means that people's values and nature's values people's rights, human rights, and nature's rights are more important than the interests of capital. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the SDGs are, in my view, a very important outcome of a negotiation. But it also builds on the previous agenda. They are being implemented. It also builds on previous agenda. It builds on the Definitely. 92 agenda. Definitely. The MDG agenda, Definitely. so it few, yeah. it was kind it of building on previous work. Yeah, yeah. Part of a process, but it has to be implemented. You cannot continue only negotiating, agreeing on a text, forgetting it. Going to a new negotiation, agreeing on a new text, forgetting it again. As long as that is happening, people are being deluded. You may also say, Nature is being detrayed, and poor people are being detrayed. Um, and that is what we perhaps have done, but I may have been guilty also in that respect, that I was continuously negotiating. I was believing in the system. Okay. Um, and I tried to contribute to implementation, and definitely I did my part. But implementation is more important than new texts. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Implementation is more important than 
new texts. And there are a lot of current texts that are good enough. That sure, definitely. That's also, significant and that's also the Earth chart. Huh? Mm -hmm. That's also the Earth chart. We're going to discuss that. But uh, it is one of the inspiring uh, texts which was not um, brought to people from above. Huh? Um, but which is part of a of a process, uh, and to a certain extent, what I mentioned as the climate movement of young people, or the anti-racial uh, discrimination movement of others, um, the Earth Charter is also such a movement. It is a movement from below. A number of countries have ascribed to it, have they embraced it, but more important is that people believe in the values of the Earth Charter um, and that they fight for those values to make them not individual values but public values. Mm -hmm. but on the basis of a, a movement, a fight by people themselves, not just the outcome of a negotiation which then can be swept aside. Right. So in your life, in your professional life, um, you must have uh, had many dilemmas and challenges in your own decision-making process, no? For you as, as the decision-maker leader in, in many of your different positions. Would you share with us one or two specific examples uh, that you have had in your professional life that you felt most challenging in terms of the decisions you had to make and the dilemmas you have had in your hands? As a matter of fact, I didn't have too many uh, dilemmas uh, which were not possibly to be possible to be overcome in terms of negotiations and international economic relations or development cooperation. My main um, personal defeats, you may say, uh, in the atmosphere of development and conflict, war. Um, I have been extremely intensely being involved in, in Rwanda, for instance. Um, well, the Civil war over there brought one million people dead in three months. Genocide. We had built a world system in order also to safeguard human rights. We had an anti-genocide convention, but it took place and we, we didn't see it happening. We didn't foresee it. It happened. And so we came too late and the world community is very often coming too late or not coming at all, looking aside. Well, I did my best, uh, but I was also too late. And that is a traumatic experience. I've seen it. I've seen the genocide. I've spelled it. I was there. That's one of the traumatic experiences about which I'm being reminded each week, still. And a second one is strongly related also to the role of the, the Dutch, that was in Srebrenica, 
uh, in the same period in Bosnia, where on the basis of humanitarian intervention and uh, to, to a certain extent the responsibility to protect uh, the Dutch um, battalion of the United Nations, Blue Helmets had to safeguard and protect people in a village. And we didn't do it very well. Um, and I was responsible as a politician. Uh, I was not a military member, I was a politician at the time, and there was genocide. Um, 8,000 people were killed, so half of the village was just killed by the, uh, by the um, Serb um, um, military. And we failed. <laughs> now, of course, they killed, but we failed to protect the people to be killed. And that is something which I, yeah, I also, like Rwanda, I'm having weekly thoughts about still, I'm still talking about it, speaking about it, trying to influence systems, um, writing about it, reading about it. Um, it is, again, the failure of a system. It's a failure of a country, but also the failure of a system because we didn't do what we promised to do. We didn't do what we promised ourselves what to do. We didn't do what we promised possible victims what we would do. No, so those are the defeats. Being, defeated in, an international being defeated in an international negotiation is not a big problem. Huh? Uh, if the outcome is not being implemented in full or hardly, it's, it's a problem, but you can you can still work in order to improve. But these were examples, and there are so many others, of course, um, of definitive defeats. So if we speak about a systematic crisis, a crisis of the system, the crisis of human rights, genocide, domestic war, violent conflict is only related to all the others, but it is preponderant. Still, maybe we have to learn the job of intervention. Um, that's possible. However, having learned the job, we did not have better successes um, in the in the period ten years later. For instance, um, in in Syria. For instance, in um, uh, in, in Central African Republic. We, we did do many mistakes in the early 1990s, maybe because we had to learn the trade of, of protection. Huh? Uh, there was no United Nations activity um, before the end of the Cold War. So in the beginning we were making mistakes. Now you can perhaps say that we could learn from our own mistakes. However, during the last 20 years we have not done better. Uh, not at all. Uh, the situation in, for instance, in Darfur is an example of of, of bad intervention. Um, the situation in Syria is uh, is even worse. Uh, there are a number of other conflicts. Say, for instance, the Rohingya in in Burma. Uh, there is no intervention in time, and of of the right character. And there are still extremely many 
victims of, of such an attitude. Um, to, to that extent, you may say that we have negotiated well international law, uh, responsibility to protect, uh, new value, but there is again no implementation. It's very interesting. The, the responsibility to protect the commission that developed that document uh, made a good job you know, in, in issuing that in a time that, uh, that uh, the international community needs to think about that kind of responsibility. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, in terms of uh, uh, 92, uh, the international cooperation around the 92 summit, uh, real world summit, how was it perceived the status of the international cooperation back then? I think it was a, it got a very positive uh, receipt. Um, after the end of the Cold War in 1989, people felt relieved in all parts of the world. Uh, in many countries, um, um, people felt that they were no longer somewhere between East and West, huh? and they could try to find their own course. In other countries, it was felt that they didn't have to invest anymore in armaments, um, so that you could more invest in poverty reduction and also in environmental protection. Um, so there was a new atmosphere, a new perspective, um, liberties, uh, care for nature. And, and as a matter of fact, the conference in Rio was the, uh, well, the high point. After three years, 89, 92, uh, people came together and negotiated in a new spirit and had a new text uh, which was forward-looking on the basis of very interesting values which were agreed upon. Um, um, well, you know the Earth Charter, definitely. Uh, however, also the values which had been agreed upon in the preambula of the, uh, the resolution uh, following the conference in Rio were forward-looking. Um, it was a kind of a miracle that it was possible to agree. Again, uh, implementation was difficult, um, but there were many efforts also after 92. In that period, uh, I was also a bit pessimistic. I thought that uh, we are failing, uh, we are not tackling all the issues which are to be tackled. However, looking backwards, I, I use the same language as I mentioned uh, half an hour ago, we were running into the right direction, but not fast enough. Um, but anyway, to run into the right direction is already important, because then you get a boost, you are being pushed. Um, you may say that after 2000, we are not running into the right direction anymore. We're, we're stepping backwards, we're stepping aside. Um, we do not even try jointly as nations within the United Nations uh, to address the problems. Um, so you can be too slow, but you work. Nowadays, there is no effort anymore. Now we are entering the third phase 
uh, or the third yeah. decade of the the new millennium and uh, almost 30 years uh, since the Earth Summit. So we are talking about international cooperation back then and how do you see it now if uh, in terms of uh, does the international community has better ideas of the challenge we have and how to address these challenges in a, in a coordinated way? Well, governments are not living up to uh, the mandate of the of the UN international negotiation hardly take place. They they do not lead to uh, to concrete results. And insofar as there are some results, there is no implementation whatsoever. We are sliding backwards. Uh, um, which is to a large extent, of course, the result of the fight against uh, and, and uh, between the the big powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, the world is completely different nowadays. Uh, the big powers have taken over uh, and uh, they dictate the speed because they're only interested in geopolitical uh, influence and in their own national interest. Uh, America first, America first. And of course, all countries follow that. Uh, China first, uh, Russia first. Um, and nowadays you see that also in big parts of the, of the population in Europe. Uh, Europe inward looking, uh, Brexit, uh, UK first. Um, um, no, it is is dismantling our capacity to uh, to address common problems on the basis of a country first approach. You will never be able to find the pandemic. You will never be able to address climate change. You will never. Uh, be able uh, to um, uh, to restore e economic and financial stability, which is being threatened by big um, corporations and final institutions and banks. Uh, you will not be able to solve the world uh, uh, refugee crisis or the crisis with regard to. Uh, the distortion of the ecology and uh, biodiversity. You have to do it differently, together, not on a nation-first approach. No. Okay, so let's look at now the Earth Charter from your point of view. Uh, what do you think is the relevance of the Earth Charter to current times and how, how do you think it can be used? But before that, I think it's good and important for us to, to remember that you were uh, Minister of International Cooperation back in the early 90s and especially when the Dutch government uh, gave a, a significant push and support to launch uh, the New Earth Charter Initiative uh, back in 94 and in May 95 uh, um, a first major Earth Charter workshop took place in the Peace Palace and you were part of that. Would you uh, share with, with us uh, what what happened there, what you remember. Yeah, I'd like to do that, but I must be a bit modest, uh, because as a matter of fact, indeed, um, the Dutch government did um, finance the whole operation, and um, I could do that myself as a Minister for International Cooperation, because it all came from the budget of Development Cooperation. Uh, it was in 1995. I had been uh, present in 1992 at the uh, Rio uh, conference um, as a member of, of the government. 
um, I saw the Earth Charter movement workshop towards a movement uh, as a sequel, follow up to that uh, to that conference. Uh, I was at the same time, I must confess, a bit hesitant because I was quite impressed with the principles which had been agreed upon in Rio de Janeiro itself. Uh, the list of principles and values is still outstanding. Uh, but there was not much of a follow-up after Rio, um, in the, which is so often the case. You come together in an international United Nations conference, you agree on something, and then there is no implementation. So I saw the Earth Charter workshop at the beginning of a movement to go for sustainable development in the broadest sense of the world, led by a number of statesmen. As a matter of fact, uh, my former Prime Minister, Ruud Lubbers, I had been a member of his government as well, was uh, the main active person in the Netherlands to push for it. And he had brought together a number of other international uh, statesmen. Amongst them, which was quite something, uh, Gorbachev. And Gorbachev was willing to come to the Netherlands to participate in a workshop to start drafting such a charter. And if you have a person like Gorbachev adding his weights and also his wisdom, huh, uh, to a meeting where people together draft a text that is well, exceptional. Um, so the workshop took place. Um, I did myself, I was participant, but I couldn't really participate. I, I will explain because I made an opening statement together with Gorbachev and together with, uh, with Lovers. Maybe these statements are still somewhere available, but I couldn't find it so fast. I had to leave. It was the meeting in the Peace Palace, quite something in itself. Uh, the relation between development, environment and peace uh, is there. But we had the Council of Ministers meeting at the same day, which I had to attend because it was um, in, the begin in the middle of the, um, of the war in Bosnia. And we had uh, a, um, a Dutch blue helmet United Nations battalion in Srebrenica. And they were attacked uh, by, uh, the, uh, uh, by the Serbs under Mladic. Uh, a month later, it, uh, it, it broke down completely and did lead to that very um, well-known tragedy of the genocide in, uh, in Srebrenica. I was much involved in, in policymaking at the time on development and conflict. Um, I was very much involved also in uh, issues on, on Bosnia and Srebrenica. So I had to leave the meeting uh, of the workshop. Uh, but you were we there were for the opening, in, yeah? in the Council of Ministers meeting. But we got a report and I, uh, uh, because the meeting didn't last longer than one day. I got the report and I added my, my ongoing support and I kept, oh, Lubbers had uh, stepped down as Prime Minister. Wim Kok had uh, succeeded him, but I kept uh, regular contact with uh, Lovers and also with some other people uh, brought together by him. And as a matter of fact, also with you, because you were involved right from the beginning. I knew you already, uh, I think, uh, around 
or even before 1992, uh, we had discussions on sustainable development. Um, um, I think I, I added my political wisdom uh, to you, but you added your, well, substantive uh, thoughts with regard to sustainability uh, in quite a number of discussions uh, with me. Um, so that was the beginning. But I was just at the sidelines. Uh, but you very much the, interested. But you at made the, the, the opening speech and uh, you were also uh, in conversation with Mohamed Sanun at the Yeah, before, before we had, yeah. Before the workshop took place a couple of weeks earlier, Sahnoun, Mohamed Sahnoun came to the Netherlands in order to discuss with me and also with Lubbers, I suppose, but I had a, a private meeting with him, uh, the, uh, the outline of the Earth Charter as thought it could be by him, and the agenda for the workshop uh, and a number of other details. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I knew Sahnoun also very well uh, from another number of conflict situations in the world. The 90s were after 1992, uh, when everything was bright after the end of the world, the, the, the Cold War, a decade of conflicts, all these civil conflicts, um, uh, civil wars. Um, I think I told you that I have been involved in many of the efforts all around the world in order to, you know, to try to bring peace. Um, amongst them also in Somalia, uh, and I met him. Amongst them also in, uh, in, in Sudan, I met him. Of course, I was involved in Rwanda, but I don't think I met Sahnoun um, uh, in, in Rwanda. Uh, but he was also a bit involved uh, in uh, discussions on, on Bosnia. So we met each other quite a number of times. Um, yeah. So it's very, uh, so, and very there is a relation. There is a relation. Mm -hmm. That the both of you, Yang Prong and uh, Mohamed Sanun, were so much involved in the many conflicts, uh, in trying to address many of the conflicts in, in, in Africa but also in, in the environmental agenda and sustainability agenda. Yeah, because there are many reasons for conflicts, many. But one reason is very often being forgotten. And you may say that it's unsustainability, a lack of sustainability, a bad environment, a natural environment, a worsening natural environment that may be climate change induced, that may be drought, uh, floods, um, hunger because of deteriorating uh, soil conditions, uh, or uh, uh, a worsening of the biodiversity. Now, it is adding to conflicts. There are other reasons for conflict as well, of course. Uh, dictatorship, uh, violation of, of, of human rights, um, or strife amongst religious or ethnic minorities within a, a new nation state. But as a matter of fact, all these sources of conflict are impinged on each other. They influence each other. Um, and I, I saw a relation between the possibility to shape a brighter future after Rio in terms of sustainability 
environment, poverty, decrease, that was a real, and peace, um, peace operations, uh, conflict de-escalation in the 90s. So it was a decade of two major developments. This, the struggle for sustainability, it's a struggle, and the struggle for peace, which is also a fight. And they are linked uh, to each other. And if you ask me, what is the importance of the Earth Charter today? Well, the, the crisis and conflict causes have not been diminished. On the contrary, in these 30 years, as a matter of fact, despite all our efforts, they have increased. There is a crisis of the system nowadays, a world system. You can also say an earth and its inhabitants system. And the crisis of that system is a bunch of crises, more, which influence each other. Climate, biodiversity, uh, racism, conflicts between religions, uh, and also the natural environment, and increased dictatorship, which means also authoritarian rule and a decreasing value given to democracy, of people's democracy, not official democracy, but real people's democracy. Now, it's all related to each other. The one crisis leads to the other, and then a reaction that it will um, enhance the crisis as a whole. Now, you need, I think we just discussed that, new institutions or existing institutions reformed on the basis of international law, and that can only be done on the basis of values, of principles. Now, they ought to be broad, and they ought to be not imposed by leaders or governments. Um, they ought to be internalized by people. Now, the Earth Charter movement is a movement of drafting and sustaining a broad set of principles, values, and internalizing them in an increasing manner by many more people all around the world. Now, it is not a charter which includes instruments and specific goals. But the instruments and the specific goals are being discussed in the, for instance, in the framework of the United Nations, in world conferences, uh, linking instruments with goals. But you can only do so on the basis of values. If you don't have values, shared values, are, no? shared values, shared, not Westerns, not Western, not Chinese, uh, not also not indigenous only, not American, no shared values, huh? which can be shared by indigenous groups and Chinese and Westerners, including Americans and Southerners, then you have a basis on which you could try to agree on goals and instruments in order to yeah, 
get peace, get sustainability, or to mention to save the earth and to save the earth. So the principles, the charter with principle, that's the first step, but not only just the first step, it is perhaps the most important step. Because if you do not share and do not agree, then any effort to reach goals or instruments is bound to fail because you get then a new fight on the goals, a new fight on the instruments, um, because not everybody is in agreement with them. You can only agree on goals and instruments if you agree on the values. It is like a constitution in a country. You need a constitution, otherwise you cannot agree. You also have to agree on the on the process of implementation and the process of decision making. You can only do so on the basis of shared values. Now, that's the importance, I think, of the Earth Charter today, which, because the crisis and the conflicts are bigger than 30 years ago, is an importance broader greater than 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And international cooperation, in order for it really to be strengthened, uh, shared values for the common good are also yeah. important, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the set of principles, of course, ought to be intertwined. It ought to be logical. It ought to be systematic. Uh, they should be interdependent. It, it, not, it should not be a loose set of principles. No. Uh, it's a system in itself. And that's the, that which is, is the beauty of the Earth Charter. Um, and of course, I have looked many times uh, to the Earth Charter uh, throughout these decades and, um, and asked myself, things have changed in the world. Uh, do we have to reform the principles of the Earth Charter? Do we have to adjust them? And I always came to the conclusion, no, it's all there. It's all there. They have a, a long-term significance. Um, that is all, well, um, thanks to um, the, the wise people who were sitting together at that time. Hmm? So we owe them a lot. Yeah, visionaries, huh? with a v long-term yeah. vision uh, to, to sure. things. Well, that, that was so clear and I, I'm so thankful for you to share this with us. Uh, may I ask just one last question in terms of uh, your views on the current agenda of uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals in relation to the climate change and the whole challenge of peace security. Do you see hope and, and do you see that uh, at least in terms of the agenda the way it's articulated, are we on the right track? Well, the articulation of the agenda is on the right track, but the implementation is not. Um, I am, I think I discussed that with you also in the previous uh, part of the interview. I'm a, a lot of pessimistic, in particular since the uh, beginning of this particular new uh, millennium, this new, uh, the, the, the last two decades. Um, 
um, most of the decisions taken by the big powers were in their own self-interest. It did lead to many negative consequences economically and also in terms of sustainability and more war and conflicts. Um, the United Nations was not able to contain that. Um, the countries even did prevent a real possibility to discuss it within the framework of the system. Um, well, there were some exceptions. The most important exception was the agreement on the uh, SDGs. Following the agreement, I was very positive on them in the year 2000, the agreement on the MDGs. Uh, the SDGs are broader, uh, a step further. Um, more than only poverty reduction, because you need sustainability to reduce poverty. You need more equality to reduce poverty. Uh, and you need to reduce poverty in order to get sustainability. Okay. So it's, it's a broader view. The but they are the goals. Now, some goals could have been, of course, um, drafted um, stronger, in stronger language than they have done. But it was the result of a compromise, and it is a, well, it's a world consensus. In implementation is low in many countries. Um, and why, it's why do you it's think coming, it's... it's coming now clear and, and near to us because it's only 10 years uh, in the year 2030. Huh? So we uh, have used already five years of, uh, of that specific period. And one of the examples is the one which you mentioned, and that's climate. Uh, there was a conference in, in Paris. Um, the conference in Paris did result in an agreement, but the agreement was rather hollow, because in the past the agreements were on a binding uh, treaty. You had to um, fulfill your uh, commitments, otherwise you were penalized. Um, um, nowadays, Paris is a promise to do your best as a country. Uh, countries are not doing their best and the outcome in the year 2030 will be far below the, uh, not only the expectations, but also below what is necessary in order to be, well, um, safe as a world as a whole in the next couple of, of decades. So it's, it's again implementation. So I'm positive about the role of the United Nations in terms of agenda setting, in terms of value building, um, discussing. Why do you think there's so much or always gap between the development of policies and agenda and the actual implementation? Always over the years and history, the UN is getting better and better in developing policies and agenda, but always with this challenge and difficulty to implement the agendas. Why this gap is always there? I do not have a real 
full answer to this because these are questions which I am asking myself regularly. I've always seen a main reason in terms of the commercial interest of big companies which are stronger than countries and have a lot of lobbying and other influence on political leaders. Um, so directing the political process into the interest of, well, money, uh, capital, uh, profits rather than, than people and the earth. That is important. Um, then defining a national interest in commercial in terms. But then in the commercial interest of the middle class and the, and the higher up people, not the lower class, which is not being seen, which is being um, exploited or excluded or sent away. No? So there is a, a combination between commercial interest, financial interest, and group interests of people who within a society think that they are still at the, at, at, at the right side of the gap within their own society and want to stay over there and then take distance from the other people, um, which then will result, of course, in other people who do not expect much anymore from the political system to either turn their back to the system or to start following leaders who are populist, who are deluding them, yeah? um, who say that they work in, in their interest, but don't do that because they're only working in their own personal interest. Uh, so what I did say was that the economic development, which has been based in particular now on transnational finance, has also led to a political development of division. And of division within countries and, and between countries. Um, um, and that has weakened the, well, the compliance with international law and with your commitments to international community and international organizations. Was very comprehensive answer. For someone who didn't have the answer before, I think it was very good. Uh, it's also something that is often in my mind and I'm often trying to, to, to see why there is so much uh, uh, difference or gap between policy development and agenda setting at the UN and even at the national level and the actual implementation. And I guess more uh, communication, information and cooperation uh, is much necessary. If we, if we were to, to change or the course of where we are going. Leaders have to be trusted. And many people don't trust the leaders anymore and leaders give many reasons not to trust them anymore, which is also um, leading to 
major conflict within society and in a sheer inability now to to have a capable national system because you need leaders to build the system and to uh, keep the system in place but if people themselves don't trust the leaders anymore don't trust the promises anymore and 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 talk about their distrust and uh, use the social media to spread also and that message um, it is also extremely difficult even for leaders of goodwill uh, to um, to do the necessary thing um, so the ghost seems to be sometimes out of the bottle well thank you so much uh, young prong uh, we are coming to an end of our podcast and i really want to express my appreciation for you for joining us today thank you you're welcome If you like this episode, please share it and support our movement by making a donation. This podcast is developed by Earth Charter International as part of our work as UNESCO Chair on Education for Sustainable Development with the Earth Charter. For more information, visit our website at earthcharter.org.